Well, have you ever come across someone who didn't know their place in this world? Uh, Someone who overreached an imposter of sorts? If you look at the the top of your outline, you'll see a picture of an imposter. He's on the left-hand side of the picture. His name is Carl Power and he's a serial pest. It seems his job in life is to end up in places where he shouldn't be, uh, places where he has no right to be. Uh, This was one of the examples. Uh, After a Manchester United game, I think it was a Champions League game, there they were lining up for the team photo and uh, Carl uh, sidles up next to them in full gear, ready for the photo. And you can see the reaction of the team, just indignant. Who is this fool? You don't belong here. He's uh, he's done it a number of occasions. In uh, one test match, English test match, uh, at the fall of a wicket, out strode Carl in full cricket gear, ready to take strike. He's done it at Wimbledon just before a game when they're usually warming up. There was Carl warming up, I think, with a friend uh, ready to play before someone discovered who he was, an imposter. Truth is, uh, in this world, that uh, you're not allowed to be ordinary. You're meant to excel at something. You're meant to have a gift. You're, you're meant to be special. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's got to be something. But if you don't, that, that's okay, I guess. But don't make the foolish mistake of overreaching your place. And many of us will have seen uh, what happens when someone does. A few weeks ago in the show, Britain's Got Talent. Now, I take great pride in never having seen this show live, but uh, if you've watched news services over the last week, you will have come to know Susan Boyle and describing herself uh, before her chance in Britain's Got Talent as a middle-aged woman, dowdy, unemployed, never been kissed. Not the sort of uh, typical pop star uh, in our world. And as she's introduced, uh, she walks onto the stage and does a little shimmy and uh, one article that I read this week said the whole of the UK winced in unison. There she was, this foolish woman. The audience uh, started to snigger and one of the judges said, what's your dream? And she says, I want to be a professional singer. Again, the crowd goes into hysterics, his eyes rolling everywhere. You're kidding, right? Have you never looked in the mirror? You don't know your place, do you? This stage is for the special ones and you, ma'am, are a fool. And then it happens. The music swells and she starts to sing and within seconds she owns the room. The crowd that was laughing at her is now standing in applause and by the end of the song one of the judges says, everyone was laughing at you, no one is laughing now. You can go back to your village with your head held high. And in the days that have followed, Susan Boyle has become a worldwide star. Millions have rejoiced in this moment of seeing a nobody become somebody. In all the news services all around the world, they've ended with the feel-good story of Susan Boyle and almost all of them have had some derivative of the phrase, well, I guess you can't judge a book by its cover. And we smile, believing that perhaps just for a moment we're not as cynical or as superficial as we thought. But rewind the tape again. What if it played slightly differently this time? What if as the music swells and she starts to sing that just like most of us, within seconds it's clear that the book is worse than the cover, that she can't sing to save herself? The simple fact is Susan Boyle is a star because she's a great singer. But without that voice, that gift, she's a nobody. And in our world you're not allowed to be a nobody You're meant to have something, some gift, some talent that says, this is who I am. So let me ask you, uh, who are you? What's your place 
in this world. In your family, what's your place? Are you the centre of things, the go-to person, the, the, the significant figure? Or as time has gone on and children have grown up and grandchildren have come along, have you perhaps moved to the edges past your use-by date? How about in your workplace? Is your role significant? Are you outstanding in your field? Are you highly regarded? Do they rely on you? Or are you just somewhere in the middle muddling around? How about if you're a mum, are you a good mum? Are you the sort of mum that other mums look at and go, gee, I wish I was that organised and on top of things? Or are you the one wandering along on the school run along Fullwood Road in total disarray, having yet again forgotten the book bag and realising that yet again your son's trousers are on back to front? <laughs> how about in Fullwood? How do you stack up here? What's your place in Fullwood? How about your family's place? Are you doing well? Are you proud of your kids as they've grown up, as they've reached adulthood? Uh, do you have lots to say in the Christmas letter to friends? You know, lots of things to say, gee, we're doing well. Or are things a bit of a shambles? Who are you? What's your place? How about in this church family? What's your place here? Do you know your place? Are you important? Respected? Uh, an elder statesman, a significant figure, gifted? Do you have a ministry? Do people rely on you? Would they know whether you were here or not this morning? Or are you a nobody, surrounded by seemingly super Christians who seem to do so much, so well, and you struggle to even be here? Let's take the spotlight off you for a moment. How about us together? Who are we? What's our place? Christchurch forward. If someone was to ask you, tell me about your church, what's it like? What are you going to tell them? Are you going to talk about our size? There's not just a few of us rattling around. We're a big church. Perhaps tell them about the programs. You name it, we've got a program for it where there's things happening. Perhaps our doctrinal rigour that we are careful with the truth of God's word. Perhaps our role in the wider church scene. What's our place? Well, into the interference and the static of so many factors and responsibilities and influences that can shape us individually and as a church family comes the clarion call of this letter, sounding one clear note by which we are to understand ourselves and understand this church family. The note, it's 1 Corinthians 2.2. It is the beaten, pathetic, weak, foolish, abandoned man dying on a cross. It is Christ and him crucified. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to a church that he has planted into the city of Corinth, a city that was obsessed with status and success and power and giftedness, a city full of aspiring special ones. That's the soil that this church was planted in. And for a while the church flourished. House churches popped up all over this big, important Roman city. Things were going very well. But over time, the soil of the city began to affect the church. The church grew toxic, racked with deep divisions, populated by self-important and self-promoting leaders who, who gathered around them disciples. They were crippled by sexual immorality. There was a litigious spirit. They were taking each other to court over anything. They were divided over so many things. Idolatry, the role of men and women, the exercise of gifts, even the resurrection. Name the issue and they split over it. Here was a church growing up to look more and more like the city around them 
people hungry for status and influence and happy to divide along the way. Well, it's into this melee that Paul sounds the note of Christ crucified. While there are a myriad of problems that he deals with through the the pages of this letter, he answers all of them, all the pride, all the power plays, all the deeply ingrained sin with the simple, clear and wonderful call to remember Christ and him crucified. We need to know we come to this letter as a church planted in soil not dissimilar to Corinth. Our city, our world, our culture is just as obsessed with status and achievement and influence and just as divided as Corinth was. And so we must not be naive to to think there's no danger here, but to see the danger that we could end up just as divided as this church. And so let us let this letter shape our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of this church. As Paul begins his letter, as he begins to address the problems in Corinth, it's Amazing to see how he begins in these first nine verses that we're going to look at. He doesn't go straight into the division, straight into the issues. He says, before we deal with any of that, you need to know something. You need to remember who you are. He says really two things in these verses. You need to remember that God called you and God keeps you. That's who you are, those whom God has called and those whom God keeps. Let's look at each of those. Firstly, God has called you. Have a look at verse 1. Here you've got a pretty typical start to a letter. Paul introduces himself, but even here he's giving us a remarkable insight into how we should view ourselves. You see, uh, the Apostle Paul, even before he became a Christian, had many reasons to boast. He uh, was a model church member, if you like, uh, from good stock, the sort of Oxbridge double first kind of guy, successful in his career. But none of these things tell you who he is. Verse 1 tells you that. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In a world that that loves to view itself in terms of its achievements, in terms of its CV, comes Paul's self-understanding. He is who he is, not because of his achievements, but because of another's will, another's call. He is shaped by the will of another. And while his role as an apostle is a unique one, this is true of all of us as Christians. We as Christians are those who respond to God's calling on our life by saying, not my will but yours be done. And even here in this first verse you start to see the wonderful freedom that comes from such a clear understanding of yourself. The freedom that comes from being defined not by the world around us, not by the expectations of others but by God. We see we have no need to perform to an audience, especially here in this place. We play to an audience of one, a God who has already given his verdict on our life, as we'll see in a moment, a God whose call on our life is clear and decisive and wonderful. And if you want to see what that call looks like, have a look how he describes this church in verse 2. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. His will for us as Christians and as a whole church family involves two things. We are to be his and we are to be holy. Do you see how he defines the church? A church that felt pretty good about itself, a big, a significant church, populated by people who felt they had a stake in the church, that they had a say. Not so, says Paul. This is God's church, not yours. 
He has put his name on it. It belongs to him. The church is not the possession of one person or another, but God's possession. And this is especially important for the Corinthians to hear and for us. If you like, here in the the opening verses, Paul is firing a shot across the bow of the who's who of the church. This isn't your church. This is God's church. Now feel both the comfort and the challenge of that. Firstly, the comfort of knowing what you are a part of this morning. See the treasure this church really is. See its immense value. Not just the building, not the fabric of this church, but the people that God has gathered together here. It's the church of God. A church that he bought not cheaply but with his own blood. A church he regards as his bride that he dwells with. It should stun you that you are a part of her. But it should also stop you in your tracks. Whenever we feel inclined to be part of power plays or cliques or or factions or feel that we have more sway in this church or more say than others, truth is we don't. This church is not the possession of anyone, nor is it ours together. It's not a democracy. It's God's place, his home, his bride, and he will not share her. And so we need to guard this truth. For it's easy to to have a church where other voices other than God's shape who we are. It's also easy to want to be in a church where we have the power to shape things according to our will. That may be how our city works, that may be how our culture works, but it is not how the church of God works. It is not our will, but his be done. And in verse 2, we see his will on us, his call, is not only to be his, but to be like him, be holy. Paul says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Who are you? What's your place? Well, verse 2 tells it. You are sanctified. It's it's a decisive word. It's a past tense word. Who you are came about in the past. It's got nothing to do with your achievements. How did it happen? Where did it happen? Well, it happened in Christ. At the cross, who you are changed forever. And you had nothing to do with it. This is not your achievement. It's a gift. Again, feel the comfort and the challenge here. The comfort of knowing whatever fears or insecurities you may have about your place in this world and especially in this church family. Feel the assurance of knowing that God knows who you are. You are his. You are sanctified, completely washed clean. Also feel the challenge. Whatever pride or security or status we feel we have in this world or have achieved or deserve in this world that we may want to bring with us into this place is stripped away by this verse. As Paul says of himself in Philippians 3, all my success and my skills and my wealth, whatever, falls away before this reality. I am not a self-made success story. That's not the story of my life. Whatever my CV may tell me, it took the death of God's son to rescue me from sin and death. It took God's own blood to wash the mess off me. I brought nothing to the table except sin. And so I come here standing among equals. What's your place? You are sanctified, washed in his blood. That's your identity here and in the world. You see here the, the remarkable truth that both the fearful and the proud need to hear Christ and him crucified. 
But have a look again at verse 12. It's such a rich verse. See why we are sanctified. What, what purpose there is for that? To be holy. I mean, really, it's a tautology. Paul is saying, you were made holy at the cross. Now you are called to be holy. Live who you are. Live out this new status that God has given you in Christ. But notice something else about this verse. Straight after the word holy, there's a comma that shouldn't be there. Where are we to be holy? Together. Now that changes things. I suspect most of us, when we hear a call to be holy in the Bible, we we start to think in isolation as individuals and we make a mental to-do list and not-to-do list in our heads. But the call here is to be holy together amidst sinners like you and I, amidst other people who are weak and inconsistent just like you. Now, I don't know about you, but, but the people I know best, the people I am closest to are the people I find it hardest to be holy around. It struck me this week that I am more patient with strangers than I am with my own son. If you find it easy to be holy in this church family, then you don't know this church family. Have a look around. They're sinners, selfish, unreliable, and so are you. Spend enough time in this church family and one of two things will have to happen. Either what's happened in Corinth, which is we just divide. We surround ourselves with people we find it easy to be holy around. Or as Paul is calling us here, we we be holy together. We grow in holiness together. Which will mean over time that we'll have to forgive each other again and again. We'll have to grow in, in being more forbearing, loving more than we feel that we are loved back. That's how this family, God's family, works. The Corinthians had stopped doing that. We must be careful to heed this call to be holy together. So this is the first part of our identity that Paul is showing us here in these opening verses. We are called by God, called to be holy. The second one that we see in the the, uh, first few words of verse 8, you are kept by God, strong to the end. It's wonderful assurance here for our future. He will keep you. Now remember who Paul is writing to here. This is not the the model church, strong Christians going great guns at all. This is the problem church, divided, immoral, fractious. In chapter 4 he'll call them babies in the faith. He'll say many hard things to them in this letter, many warnings, many calls for change. But he starts with this. He will keep you strong to the end. You see, Paul isn't dangling their eternal futures before them. If you don't shape up, you'll lose all this. Because he knows God doesn't. No, God has called you and he will keep you. He's not just saying these things, sort of Dale Carnegie school of how to win friends and influence people. Say some nice things before you say the hard things. No, he says them because he knows this is how we will heal divisions amongst us by realising that it is God who has called us and God who keeps us strong. How can Paul be sure of this? Well, you see it there in verse 4. He says, I always thank God for you. Remarkable when you think about the sort of church they are. But why? Because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. The ground of his thankfulness, the ground of his confidence is not the Corinthians and their achievements and their status and their wealth and their gifts, nor is it even his ministry. It's grace given in Jesus Christ 
Paul is sure that this church is kept because he knows this grace has been given. Again, it's a past tense. He's talking about the cross yet again. The decisive act in which God was the giver and they, despite all their pomp and circumstance, despite all their pretensions about who they are, were the passive receivers. Before God's grace, any feelings of success or superiority or deserts or rights or sway or say that we think we have in this church family fall before his grace. Paul doesn't want us to miss this. In fact, in the first ten verses, he mentions Jesus Christ ten times. It's like he graffitis all over his letter, Jesus Christ. What's the answer to their divisions? Jesus is. It sounds like a Sunday school answer, doesn't it? And it is. So simple. Paul knows this grace given in Jesus Christ is enough. Enough for what? Well, you see that in verse 5. Because of this grace, you have been enriched in every way. You're rich. Again, it's past tense. For a city filled with aspirational people, people desperate to increase their status and their standing and their giftedness, Paul says to you, you are rich already. You can't get any more rich than you are now. In verse 7 he says the same thing in reverse. You lack nothing. No gift, no grace has been withheld. God has spent the bank on you. He has given you his best, his treasure, his son. You lack nothing. Paul drives this point home by citing in in verse 5 two of the things that they used to sort of compare each other by. Two of the things that they played one-upmanship against each other in the church in Corinth. Speech and knowledge. These were important gifts. If you had them, you, you were a somebody. Paul will critique these things later in the letter, but here he says, you want to know how you became rich in speech and knowledge? It's not the things you think about. Verse 6 tells you how. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, because you believed the gospel, that's where your wealth comes from, from the testimony about Christ. The moment you as a Christian believed and came to Jesus in repentance and faith, God put this massive deposit in your bank. There's no more room in the bank. You are rich in every way. You lack nothing. Now if that's true of us, if if that's who we are, then surely that will shape the way we serve each other. Because I am rich in grace, it means I can sacrificially serve those around me without feeling that I'm going to lose out by doing it. I can serve even when I'm not thanked for it because I'm rich in every way. And countless people do that in our church family. Countless people serve without any thanks or any recognition because they know in God's economy there are no kudos. I can serve even when I feel that others aren't carrying the weight, that I'm carrying the load. I can use the wealth, the gifts that God has given me to serve others, even my home. I remember in Sydney, where we grew up, there was a, there was a guy who opened his house up once a year for the, um, the youth group to have their annual barbecue and pool party. And he'd spend the whole year getting his garden perfect and the pool in tip-top shape and in the space of about an hour and a half, the garden and the pool were essentially destroyed by this herd of wildebeests that the youth were. The, the pool was brown from all the dirt and the muck that they brought in. The whole garden was churned up and he did it year after year. He kept putting up his hand. Some would call him a fool and yet he knew he was rich in every way. And the opposite of, is true as well. Because I lack nothing in his grace, I'm able to serve. 
And I've spoken to many people over recent years in this church family who, who don't think they're able to serve here. There's so many clever people, brilliant people, talented people who can do things better than me, quicker than me, faster than me, better than me in all sorts of different ways. So I'm just not going to bother. I can't see where there's a place for me. This is a church for special ones. That's not how God runs his church. He uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He uses the weak things of this world to overcome the strong. You lack nothing. He has made you rich, so serve. And for those who are prone to know they lack nothing, but perhaps feel it's because of their wonderful gifts or natural abilities, remember what you contributed to those gifts. Nil. Paul tells us this because he knows that divisions and status-seeking comes when we think too much about ourselves and not enough about the grace that has been given us in Christ Jesus. Now, as we come to a close, check this out. Verse 8. Because of his grace, not only are you rich in every way, not only do you lack nothing now, you lack nothing for the future. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were this morning, if we handed around a survey, you had to fill out a survey, how are you going in the Christian life? You know, give yourself a rating out of 1 to 10, what are you going to give yourself? Or perhaps the, the Christian report card, a bit like a school report card where you get those little words at the end, what words are you going to use to describe your Christian life? Average, could do better, needs to listen more in class. Well, hear the testimony of verse 8. Because God keeps you by his grace, the two words that God uses to describe your Christian life are these, strong and blameless. It's amazing, isn't it? Blameless. You think he's got to be kidding that that maybe on a perfect day, maybe when I'm at my absolute peak, I am blameless and that's only for the first five minutes before I meet anyone or my brain's in gear enough to think a thought, then I'm blameless. But other than that, he's talking about someone else. No, says Paul, because of his calling, because at the cross you were washed clean forever, because he has enriched you in every way, withheld no gift, you are strong to the end. So that on the, at the end, on the day of the Lord, you will stand before him blameless. Now, that's remarkable. All the way through the Bible, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, a day to fear. It's a day when God calls things as they really are. Our pretensions about ourselves are stripped away. Amos 5 says it's a day to be feared and to not want. And yet for those in Christ, our passage says you are to eagerly expect that day, long for it, because you will be found blameless on that day. When God calls things as they really are, he will call you blameless. And while we wait for that day, every step right up to and including the last one is a blameless one for those in Christ. You are rich in every way, says Paul. No kidding. How can you be sure of all of this? Well, Paul tells us in verse 9. Unfortunately, the English translations have have muddled up the, the, the verse, but really the last two words should be right up near the start, the second and third word. How can we be sure of all of this? Simple. God is faithful. That's your only sure footing in this world. That's your boast. That's your pride. Not your skills or your marriage or your children or your career or your ministry or your experience. Whatever the crowd may cheer you for, God does not cheer you for those things. The Christian boast is that he is faithful. 
Our God will keep us strong and blameless until the end. So let me finish where we started. Do you know your place in this world and in this church? As you, as you walk out of this place today, as you walk into your homes, as you walk into the world on Monday, do you know who you are? Not the things you put on your CV or in the Christmas letter. This is who you are, who we are. We are those, that, in the words of verse 3, who have received unmerited, unmeasurable, unending grace from God. That's who we are. And we are those who enjoy unmerited, unmeasurable, unending peace with him. Let's pray.